Our passage today for our scripture lesson is Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 21 through 35, and it's found on pages um, 946 of the Bibles nearby. Also, it'll be on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The word of the Lord. All right, well, let's pray together. Our gracious God, as we look at this um, story, as we think about what Christmas is all about, we invite you to speak to us. We come from all kinds of different experiences, levels of belief, levels of doubt. We come to the Christmas season some wanting it to get over with fast because of old hurts or new wounds, others filled with joy, gladness about family, about time off, about rest, about children, about parents. From all the places we come, the truth is we're more of a mess than we care to admit. Every single one of us, it's the same. And so it just heightens the sense of need for you to come in our life. And the story of Scripture is that even though you know we are a mess, that you have moved towards us. You know our brokenness. You know the the tears and the pain. You know the failures. You know the fragmentation. And through your son Jesus, you've moved towards it all and taken it on yourself so that we might be freed up to be your children, to live with our heads high, knowing that you love us deeply and have shown that through your son. Will you show us that love and teach us through that kind of grace right now? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a new product uh, out on the market right now. Um, it's called MicroZap. MicroZap is pretty amazing. I heard this on the radio the other day and I looked it up a little bit because it's it's really groundbreaking, fascinating thing. MicroZap is like microwave technology uh, shifted. I think, you know, now that I'm standing up here, I think I even mentioned this 
several weeks ago. But anyway, I'm going to talk about it a little more because it's so amazing. MicroZap, what it can do is this. It can, um, it can kill bacteria and other living things that are attached to good things, and it can kill them without uh, harming the good thing. So for example, hotels will be able to use MicroZap in washers and dryers with their linens to get rid of bed bugs, like permanently. Um, hospitals will be able to use it with their linens and towels to get rid of MRSA, the dreaded bacteria that's, um, you know, that penicillin and all those other drugs can't touch. Um, it's also in terms of food products, this is the real kind of food inter- industry payoff. Um, it gets rid of uh, listeria, salmonella, E. coli, just with a quick treatment of microzap. And these microwaves, it gets rid of them, and then the food is not, you know, it's still just as fresh. So, for example, the example they give is that a loaf of bread um, zapped with microzap, um, take it 60 days later, and it has the same amount of mold or, or bacteria on it that a fresh loaf of bread on day one has. So the microzap just kind of, you know, keeps the freshness, gets rid of all the bad stuff, and potentially would save us from the like 40% food waste that our country has, you know, that kind of thing. So this is all just incredible and amazing, right? And there's only one problem, one small problem right now. It's not yet fully operational. It's just, it's just not ready. It's in prototype mode. It's in re- whatever you want to call it, research development mode. It's beta testing, you know, patent pending, um, pre-production. It's not fully operational. You can't go out and get your GE dryer hooked up with MicroZap technology yet. You know, you can't do it. You can't have your microwave and your microzap on the counter for your food. You can't you just can't do it yet. It's not fully operational. Um, I wonder why, for so many people, the spiritual journey involves feeling a lot of the time feeling like things aren't yet fully operational. Have you ever felt this way? Do you, you feel like your faith life is fully operational, fully engaged? fully as fruitful as you think it could be. And maybe you don't even know, you know, you question like, I don't know what maybe even looks like to be fully operational. I just have the sense that it's not there yet. I don't, whatever it is, I don't have it. Now, the gospel writer Luke is who we're looking at during this Advent Christmas season, and he was part of the growth of the Christian movement, and he writes about it in the book of Acts, when it was in its most fully operational phase, maybe ever, He saw it being fully operational in towns and villages and cities. He saw it in families. He saw it in communities and groups. And he saw it in individuals. He saw the the spiritual life of people connecting their lives with Jesus blossoming. He knows what it looks like, and he writes all about it throughout his writings in the New Testament. So he saw people over and over again, not just once, but over and over again in his journeys throughout the the growth of the Christian church early on. He saw people... um, who could head straight into adversity and struggle and suffering with a kind of faith and trust that whatever might happen, that the adversity, that the struggle wasn't going to be able to take away what was their life because they now had met Jesus. Uh, People like often would have these dramatic turnarounds of all different sorts, like corrupt officials putting aside their greedy ways and reforming and having this whole new life ahead of them, changing just like that because they um, realize that their true treasure is Jesus and they don't need to, to get the payoffs and skim off the top. 
There were people, because of that same concept of their treasure, um, engaged in radical sharing between the rich and the poor, overcoming pretty firm ethnic and racial barriers that were in place and crossing and just obliterating them because there was a sense that in Jesus, the playing field had been leveled and you had to now live in that reality that we're all broken. We all need someone to come in and step in for us. And we're all humble and in need before God. And Jesus is all of our answer. He came for everyone. And so ethnic barriers were broken down. Uh, Addictive powers were broken down in people's lives in the presence of God, in the presence of Christian community, realizing that Jesus fills that hole that I was trying to fill with something else. All of these kinds of things were part of Luke's just daily understanding of what happens when the faith, when your faith in Jesus becomes fully operational. Aimless lives, finding purpose, people who are... Um, um, uh, people who were constantly scared uh, of life or just afraid of things, suddenly walking forward with inexpressible joy um, despite disappointments in life, um, people who had been rejected all their life now finding the acceptance they've never found anywhere else, not only in God but in the church of God. This is what he knew. This is what Luke wrote about. This is what Luke expected. And so as he writes his gospel, which is a story of Jesus, as he writes the story of Jesus, he pictures the people he's writing to and us, all the readers eventually, as, as people that he wants to see that same fully operational stuff happen through the good news of Jesus. And we see all kinds of great hints of this right in these early chapters of Luke. And I want to point out two things that really come out of this passage today that, um, that, make, that really lead us towards fully operational faith. The first is to be confident in the evidence, and the second is to be um, responsive to God's Spirit. First of all, uh, confident in the evidence. A couple weeks ago, I, I read the very beginning of Luke's Gospel where he makes it clear that he's writing for this person named Theophilus, and this, the phrase that we key in on is him saying, I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And then he says, he, he wrote it for most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He wants confidence in the evidence. I picture this Theophilus character, whether he was just one person or stood for people in general. I picture him, him and his world, and I wonder if the context was similar to ours. You know, what was the water cooler talk about Jesus when Luke wrote this? What were people hearing? What was the chatter? Um, and, and a lot of times with the chatter that I, I hear, my little red flags will go off or things will go off, and I'll, and, and I'll just get this sense overall sometimes that there's a lot of the chatter about Jesus is conducive of actually a fairly disengaged faith because it kind of leaves you a lot of times just kind of saying, well, yeah, who knows, maybe this, maybe that. So I heard this quote on the radio that kind of my, those alarm bells and buzzers went off when I heard this person talking about Jesus, just kind of flipping through, and all of a sudden I hear this talk as I'm getting in the car. He says, uh, he's talking about the Bible and about Jesus. This is what he says. Um, He says that, um, just listen to some of these things. He says that Matthew and Luke are primarily borrowed from Mark, the gospel writer Mark, and Mark is the bottleneck through which those stories all come. He was saying a lot of things. He said this. He said, so we're really talking about a set of stories coming from iron-aged sheep herders, people talking and sharing stories that get written down 30 to 150 years later after the fact. 
And we've got now what amounts to barely a shoebox full of fragmentary, ashy parchment documents. And then it kind of concludes by saying, um, you know, we have basically have copies of copies of copies from another century down the line from even the original documents. So he says, so we're trying to figure out what might have actually even happened on the alleged day of the resurrection in the 30s. And we just have very, very little good information at all. Now, I hear that, and as I'm, especially as I'm reading this and thinking about Luke, I think Luke would take issue with that. Because Luke, if you even look at Luke and just some of, and I've, you know, I right away had things that I said, well, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that, because I've just studied and read about a lot of these things. So some of the best scholarship, just to tell you something about Luke, the best scholarship says that Luke, Luke's gospel is written between 29 to 37 years after the resurrection. Luke was not an iron-aged sheep herder. He was actually a physician, very well educated, and he, he prided himself as in being sort of an investigative researcher. Okay, how about the bottleneck comment? Matthew and Luke are primarily borrowed from Mark. Well, actually, Luke brings in to the table 42% of unique material as he writes about Jesus, including all this stuff that we've been reading over Advent. He went way back and dug up and talked to people, investigated 42% new stuff. So do we really just have these copies, a few shreds in a shoebox? Well, okay, look at some of the statistics out there. We actually have, you can count them up, we have over 5,600 different copies that go way, way back hundreds of years that are copies of the Gospels and other New Testament writings. We have 5,600 of them. And actually, they're, they're actually found closer to the originals than um, any other ancient documents are found. So... Um, for example, uh, Homer's Iliad, um, the f- earliest copy we have is 500, af- 500 years after the original writing. With the Gospels and the New Testament, we have stuff within already within 200 years after the events, um, or after the original things were written. Um, so you just kind of go through some of that, and you, and, and you realize, if you start digging around, that the New Testament actually, actually ends up making a pretty good case. It kind of blows away a lot of the other things out there, a lot of the other um, ancient documents in terms of manuscript evidence and all of these other things. And then there's the comment about 30 to 150 years, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because, you know, you can't really... Luke was written sometime 30 to 30, 29, 37 years after the events. You can't really rewrite history that soon uh, after what has happened unless everybody who is there is dead, really. Because people, people remember, people, the stories have passed on. People were there. You can go talk to them. In fact, that's something the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he's talking about the resurrection. He says, and these people are still alive. You can go talk to them, the ones who saw Jesus. But anyway, I was thinking um, about how just last week um, there was a funeral in a church in South Sacramento. Last week, Sunday. Um, it was getting over right about this time a week ago today. And in that church, in 1977... Um, in the fall, late summer, fall of 77, I was born and then I was baptized in that exact same church. And there weren't any angels showing up to anyone or, you know, any wise men from the East Coast coming (laughs) to, to, nothing like that was happening. But at this funeral last week that was happening in that same building where I was baptized 35 years ago, were many people uh, who were at that same service for my baptism uh, people who, I, I mean, I can name them. Um, Earl Marlink, he's the one who baptized me. He was at this funeral. It was the funeral of his wife. 
Um, there were people like um, Nina Holman and Carmen Cole and Jack and Bonnie DeWitt. Um, my mom was there. Um, there are a bunch of other people I could name as well, but that just gives you a sense. Those people were all there. Now, if somebody all of a sudden in the last five years was saying, yeah, this Mark Holland guy, boy, you know, there were angels when he was born showing up, and, uh, and, and suddenly there was all these stories floating around that people made up. There's a whole crew of people there um, in the same place who, could, who would just, you could go and talk to them and ask them, and they'd all say, that's just all hogwash. None of that happened. You couldn't get away with it. Um, same thing with Luke. And Luke doesn't just go back. I mean, he goes back. He, he obviously really, the burden is on to talk about the resurrection. And he definitely gets to that in this story. But he goes all the way back. And he says it with these words in chapter 1. He says um, that he went back all the way, investigating everything from the beginning. He went all the way back. And he talked to these people. He talked to Mary and Joseph. He found out all these things. Do you see what he digs up? Notice in, um, he, we read some things about Simeon. He describes who the Simeon person is, and then after what we read, he describes Anna, who comes up to, the, to Mary and Joseph, and he describes her this way. This is incredible. He says she was very old. Or, sorry, I'll start earlier. He says, the prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and the, of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. It's kind of details that Luke says, I, I investigated. These are real people. I found out about them. You can probably talk to other people who knew this Anna character. Um, and basically what it leaves us with is, um, I had a few quotes, but I'll just, uh, just share one of them with you. C.S. Lewis, who's a kind of a famous Christian writer um, of the Narnia series, he wrote a lot of stuff about Christianity, and he was a, a professor at Oxford and an uh, expert in ancient mythology. And so this is what he says. He says, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced Whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not of the same sort of things. Well, what are we trying to say? Let's suppose you want to go somewhere. It's really important. You don't want to be late, and you're going to take your car. And let's say you, you have to go down I-5. Let's say it's in Stockton. Okay, sorry. Some, something really important is in Stockton. And that's where it just works for the analogy. And so, um, you know, you're getting ready and you're a Twitter addict. And so, you're, you know, you pull up your phone and, it's, and somebody just mentions, ah, southbound I-5 traffic, I hate you, or something like that, with some hashtags or something. I don't know what you Twitter people do. And then, um, you know, so you're just getting ready. And, and then, and then it's something from the TV, you know, that you just kind of hear and passing through the room. Um, yeah, the traffic's really bad. I-5 south and backed up. You just kind of hear it. Um, you know, and you're planning on taking I-5. And then um, you get in your car, you turn on the radio, and it says five miles south of Sacramento, um, I-5, completely stopped, you know, use alternate routes, blah, blah, blah. You hear that. And let's just say you still, after all that, you get on the on-ramp to I-5, maybe just out of habit, and you get on, and you go, ah. And then there's a huge sign that says traffic completely stopped for three hours, Take alternate routes, you know, find a detour. Now at that point, you know, are you going to wait until you're in the middle of gridlock to say, oh, by golly, sure enough, what all those things said was true. All that, you know, in a sense, all that evidence that was piling up. Now I better think about what I can do about it. And then, you know, it's kind of like, well, too late. 
There's a sense with the Gospels that if you just give them a minute, if you just give these stories a minute, if you just give it a little bit of time and start to pay attention, the evidence starts to pile up. It starts to be something you can't run away from. Um, and eventually you have to kind of, kind of make a choice. Um, and Luke's desire, I think, for all of us, is that Jesus would become just so real to you as you give it that time. That Jesus would become someone, not just a vague force, but someone who is real in your life. And that as you get to know that realness, there would be a sort of confidence about that. And then you'd start to pay attention to who, what that means. And then you would see the sort of peace that is brought, the peace not only on earth but in your heart. Um, as you look to Jesus as the one that Luke is kind of saying, see the signs, see the evidence that there's a new route. Your life can get rerouted and talk to others who have done that and you'll find out that the, the, the common thing to say is that I ended up going where I had always been wanting to go anyway. I just didn't know it was through Jesus. Um, Luke, I think, wants us all to do that and writes in such a way that he believes in that. He just really thinks, be confident in the evidence. It's real. It happened. And then he wants you to be responsive to, the, to God's Spirit, just real briefly. If you look at Simeon, it's kind of incredible what, what it says about him in this story. Describes, it talks about the Holy Spirit three times. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And then he said some things that seemed very inspired by him being filled by the Holy Spirit, by God's Spirit. And then as Luke continues in that theme of people just kind of following and being drawn, he talks about Anna, and he says about her, in verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. At that very moment. Is this one person is being led by the Spirit to just show up at the temple courts? The other one just comes right there and starts talking as well. There's people being drawn and led by the Holy Spirit. Luke, Luke traveled, as I talked about, he traveled to countless cities, and he saw over and over again people being supernaturally drawn like this. He knew about this. When he investigated and found out all about this, he, said he was like, aha, I've seen that. I've seen that over and over again. He's seen people being drawn and knows the language. That's called the Holy Spirit. Kind of this unmistakable, I'm being drawn, I'm, being, I'm here, I'm finding myself asking these questions over and over again. He saw people from all different walks of life, all different stations in life being drawn. And he wants people like you and me to ask, why am I sitting here? Why am I here? Uh, and just to begin to wonder, why do I even care enough to be here? Why do I even care to be asking questions or to read the Bible or to find out about Jesus? Why? Why does City Life Church exist? Why, um, why am I maybe just a first-time visitor or why, am I, um, why have I taken this church seriously and become a part of it? Or maybe why have I suddenly become a leader? Why am I going to a pod? Why am I leading a pod? Why am I, why am I getting baptized? Why am I joining? Why? What's happening? Luke says something supernatural is going on. The Holy Spirit's drawing you. And where does the Holy Spirit lead? Just in closing. It's interesting to see Simon's, Simeon, sorry, Simeon's, uh, his song that he kind of sings, praising God, but then he says some words to Mary. And it sounds like something kind of out of a creepy movie where somebody comes out from the dark and says something really ominous. It sounds like they have some 
you know, prophecy to deliver. Just saying, I mean, I don't know if you felt that way. I think a first reading of this, there's no way you can't have some sense. He says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. I mean, it just kind of has this, like, what are, you, what are you talking about? So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. You know, you can almost just kind of see that in a movie somewhere, right? Just a creepy little scene that you go, what was that all about? Well, what was that all about? What is he talking about? One of the amazing things about it, I can't go into all of it, is that just this final note to Mary. And a sword will pierce your soul too. It's a, he, he's, he's leading. He knows something about how, where this is all going. About This is a mom who's going to see her son rejected by many and suffer and die. And even after, um, whether or not Simeon knew this or not, but even after dying, that you know he would, he would rise from the dead, but then the son of Mary's would, would be off in, in a sense, gone when he ascends. This is, in a sense, you can look at this as just classic work of the Holy Spirit. Is that when you begin to be drawn by the Holy Spirit, when you begin to uh, uh, allow the Holy Spirit to pull on your life and sort of respond to it and answer it, the Holy Spirit's not finished with you until you reflect on the cross of Jesus and how it specifically relates to you. How, you know, in the mess and the fragmentation and the, the, the ways that our lives go in all kinds of directions, in all of it, Jesus meets us, his forgiveness meets us, and he says, you thought you had to work your way to me. You thought if you came in these doors of a church or opened these pages of scripture, you thought it was going to say, here's your list. I hope you can do well enough. And then, you know, and then I'll accept you and embrace you. And he meets you immediately and says, I've made a way. I've welcomed you in. I've embraced you. People who know that kind of amazing conclusion about the cross, that's what the cross preaches to us, is that he took our place so that we can take his. People who know about the cross and who have followed the Spirit's draw to that, they do things like Simeon and Anna, or Anna, however you say it, what they were doing. Because you catch what they were doing, it's kind of weird. Simeon and Anna, they were basically temple junkies. You know, they had, they had fallen, followed the Holy Spirit's leading, had a sense of the deep, rich goodness of God. And so where do you plant yourself so that you might get more of that? It's kind of like, you know, if you suddenly think rain is just an amazing thing for you to, let's say someone comes out with, with this report that just to be covered in rain, the more times you're covered in rain, you know, the more years you're going to live in your life, you know. And we'd all just rush out and go like, this is where it is. I'm going to get wet. I'm going to get soaked. We'd run out. You wouldn't even be here because you would be outside right now. That's the sense with uh, Simeon and Anna is that, you know what? I know where God's grace is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around the things of God, not in order to, to get God's approval, but just so that I'm close. In a sense, if Jesus is the well of living water, I'm going to do things. I'm going to plant my life right next to that well. Even if I'm religiously running around it, every once in a while, perhaps I'm going to stop and take a drink. Perhaps that water is going to be available to me if I'm close to there. I think that's a great picture for responding to the Spirit. Let us pray. Our gracious God, will you, uh, will you help us as we try to understand what this season means? Will you bring a little bit of that action of the Holy Spirit into our lives that we see on the pages of Luke? He's so convinced. He's seen it over and over again. He knows what it looks like. Would you show us? Would you drive us into community and into places of prayer with each other? about the struggles we have, but also about the things we hope you will do 
to spread your grace into the city and into the lives of those who are hurting? Would you drive us into those kinds of places with each other to pray, to support, to encourage, to absorb your scripture so that we might be drinking from the well of living water and so that we might live and so that your grace may just get larger and larger and more well-known in this city than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.